you're using a pew bible you'll find that on page 976 976 i'm going to open us in another word of prayer and then we'll get going god our father i thank you that you do speak through your word and it's by your holy spirit that hearts can be illuminated uh, enlightened as to what your truth is i pray that as we look into the letter that was received by the Ephesians, uh, as we see ourselves in need of your grace and we see your grace is all sufficient to meet our every need, it would resound in our obedience and thankfulness for all that has been done in Christ. I thank you for your plan of redemption set in place from before we uh, could ever imagine. And it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in Ephesians... The outline is going to look like this, and I shared this outline with you last week, so this isn't terribly new, though I've kind of added something. Uh, We're going to look at verses 3 to 6, 7 to 12, and then 13 to 14. In the first set of verses, we're looking at God the Father's actions. In the second set of verses, we're looking at Christ's work, Christ's actions. And the last couple of verses, we're looking at the Holy Spirit's actions or work. Those are not strict categories. Uh, God the Father's plan of redemption is in all of those verses, from verses 3 all the way through verse 14. And all of those plans and purposes of God are enlivened by His Spirit, who is in all of those verses. Uh, Christ Himself became incarnate. He's the eternal Son of God, but He became a man. And so the focus is on His work while on earth and even now in heaven. So that's kind of the plan where we're going The first set of verses is reaching all the way back into eternity past. When we speak of Christ's work, we're looking at the historical past. What was planned from before the creation of the world had to be worked out in real time and space. And so Christ, in a historical path, uh, past, uh, lived a perfect life of righteousness. He laid down his life. He was crucified. He rose again the third day. He ministered to his disciples for 40 days before ascending to the, to the Father in heaven. And then in verses 13 and 14, it brings us right to the present because it describes the work of the Holy Spirit presently even today. So you've got this great span of time that encompasses God's purposes of redemption. Each one of those stanzas, they're unequal, so it's not the, it's not the cadence that we typically sing. You sing a stanza and it always has the same meter. In these three stanzas, there's much more devoted to the Father and the Son uh, being described or sung or chanted than the Holy Spirit. But there are three stanzas, and each stanza ends with a, a refrain which is common, though not exactly alike. Each stanza ends this way. In the first case, it's to the praise of His glorious grace. Then after the focus on Christ's work, it's to the praise of His glory. And then after the focus on the work of the Holy Spirit, again, to the praise of His glory. That's kind of a transitional refrain before Paul launches into the next bit of praise that he has for all that, the, all that God has done in Christ and by His Spirit. These are sometimes called what we're talking about are doctrines of grace. It falls under the umbrella uh, of doctrines of grace. It, uh, these, this concept of, of God's purposes in salvation uh, go by many different names. They've been advocated by many different people, certainly the reformers. 
but the term that I'm probably like maybe best would be doctrines of grace. When we talk about doctrines of grace, if I go back a couple weeks and we kind of just picked out all that God has done in verses 3 to 14, the chart looked something kind of like this. God has blessed us. He chose us. He predestined us. He lavished grace upon us. He made known to us the mystery of His will. He set forth His purpose in Christ. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. And all of that is just in one sentence. Because verses 3 to 14 are one sentence the way Paul wrote them. Doctrines of grace. Doctrines of grace are, it's kind of a, because, I don't know, I don't want to speak for everybody because not everybody has the same tradition or you were raised the same way that I was raised. But typically, my experience has been, because we are by nature selfish and sin-centered, doctrines of grace initially is a bit off-putting, because I like to think that I'm the engineer of my life and my destiny, I'm the one in charge, and I'm the one calling the shots, and the more I read the Bible, the more I realize I'm not the engineer that I think I was. And the more I read the Bible, the greater God gets and the smaller I get. And I can identify with Job, you know, maybe I should just shut my mouth and you'll be God and I'm not. So, doctrines of grace. There are several things you can do at this point when we talk about the doctrines of grace. Uh, The plan could be, uh, I really don't want to hear it. I don't want to talk about these things. I will just focus on a different set of verses that suggests a different outcome. I'm just not comfortable with it. It's like I told you. Uh, years ago, back in the probably late, late 1980s, when uh, we lived in outside of Lincoln on a farm and we were going to a free Methodist church and I was teaching probably one of the first Bible studies I ever taught back in the day and, and uh, a lady came up, it was a very old congregation, and she came up and said, I don't believe in predestination. And I'm like, well, it's in the Bible. I mean, you've got to do something with it. You, you may not land where I land on that, but you can't just say, I don't believe in it, and, and say, I believe the Bible, because it is a word that's there, and you've got to deal with it on some level. So I, I think I got, we, we graciously moved through that. Uh, but we don't want to just say, I don't want to talk about it, and I don't want to think about it. Another thing I think we don't want to do is to say, uh, well, what the Bible really means when it says that. This kind of reminds me of a story, uh, it was kind of a family counseling situation many years ago, and uh, somebody in, in the group said something kind of outlandish and kind of shocking. Uh, now, when I'm in one of those situations, uh, I don't act shocked, but another family member was shocked, and the, and the other family member said, well, what they mean by that, and they kind of explained it a completely different way, and I thought... No, I think what was said the first time is what actually they meant. And it was shocking, but I think they meant it to be shocking. But the second person was so uncomfortable by that, they well, what they mean by that is this. And that happens sometimes with the doctrines of grace. God says something in Scripture, and it's kind of shocking, and it's a little bit off-putting. And so a preacher will come along, or an author comes along and says, well, what God really meant by that, it, it doesn't mean what it looks like it means. If God had a public relations manager, we would have a much different Bible. (laughs) Or, and it really doesn't make any difference whether uh, the person in the White House, this isn't a political statement really, whether the person in the White House is Republican or Democrat, 
the president will say something, and then within hours, uh, a, a spokesperson, a, a press secretary will say what the president meant was, because I, that sounded so shocking. He didn't mean, he didn't mean what he said. What he really meant was this. And so the Bible set, has a lot of shocking statements, and sometimes Christians or the churches or denominations think their job is to clean up the mess God made. Because, God, you really can't possibly mean what you just... It, if you realize what that comes across to the likes of us, how offended we are, you never would have said it. But God doesn't need our help. And I've discovered that what God says in the Bible is there for a reason, and it probably means exactly what it says. So... The alternative is to continue to search the scriptures, and by doing that, I do not mean when you arrive at my understanding, you've, you've done it right. Because you may search the scriptures, and your understanding may never perfectly align with where I'm at, where I've dis, where I am thinking what God has communicated. I don't mean to say we're gonna always wind up in the same place. But the job is to search the scriptures nonetheless. Lifelong searching and lifelong changing and adapting because you haven't arrived yet and I haven't arrived yet either. And so I have to continue to chant. You know, one of my old stories, which old timers have heard the story, or maybe if you're old enough, maybe they're all new stories to you like they are to me. But I remember going to a pastor, a denominational pastor's meeting, and there was a pastor in there, a well-respected guy. He was kind of a big shot in the, in our fellowship of churches, and he said, he said, I haven't changed my positions from the day I came to this church until the day I've left the church. And I, and I took that as kind of like, like in 40 years? Like you had it right 40 years ago, and 40 years later you're still right? I mean, hasn't you learned anything new out of God's word? Like, I don't think my doctrinal statement is that accurate yet. I, I'm very, I think it's right, but I know it can't be entirely right because God's truth doesn't end with me. And I'm not God's gift for the church from now until Christ comes back. We need to continue to reform and change our thinking as God reveals in his word. So I've said all that. I'm going to give you a series of quotes uh, dealing with the doctrines of grace. The first one is out of your bulletin. It's by A.W. Tozer. I'll show it to you on the screen. A.W. Tozer was a, a prolific author. His books are still widely read and published. Knowledge of the Holy, uh, Pursuit of God, or Pursuit of Holiness. I can't remember exactly I, which the title is. Many books by A.W. Tozer, a Christian Missionary Alliance pastor and speaker. I believe he was up in the Chicago area. He wrote, Salvation is from our side a choice. From the divine side, it is a seizing upon, an apprehending, a conquest by the Most High God. Our accepting and willing are reactions rather than actions. The right of determination must always remain with God. A second quote. This is a, a man who is a contemporary. I'm sure they knew each other. Kenneth Wiest, he was a... Uh, New Testament Greek scholar, he taught up at Moody Bible Institute for many, many years. He was one of the original workers or translators uh, that wound up being the New American Standard Bible, which is generally regarded as is a very literal type, literal leaning translation. Kenneth Wiest has a series of books called uh, Wiest Word Studies. 
Uh, he was very much the Greek scholar. Kenneth Weiss said something similar to what I've already shared D.L. Moody said. Perhaps someone may read these lines who is not a Christian. Your question is, how can I know whether I am one of those whom God has chosen? The answer is simple. Put your faith in the Lord Jesus as Savior and, Savior and God as Savior and God will save you. You will find that God the Father chose you for salvation. And then how could I not use Charles Spurgeon? I could use Charles Spurgeon from now until I've run out of time. If I only had enough time to read sermons and I could pick out one quote after another quote after another quote, he is my favorite Baptist. Charles Spurgeon from London, England said this, The only reason why anyone believes in election is because he finds it clearly taught in God's word. No man or number of men ever originated this doctrine. And then Charles Spurgeon said in another time and place, There are two great truths from this platform I have proclaimed for many years. The first is that salvation is free to every man that will have it. The second is that God gives salvation to a people whom he has chosen. And these truths are not in conflict with each other in the least degree. Charles Spurgeon, he, he gets it right so often. He was so passionate about the gospel and sinners, come ye sinners, poor and needy. But he also understood that God gives salvation to people whom he has chosen. It really doesn't make any difference unless the Bible teaches it. And the Bible has no uh, dissonance in the responsibility and the call of sinners to come to Christ for salvation and the fact that God chooses for salvation. Jesus said these words in Matthew chapter 11. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Doctrines of grace. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know what's missing from that quote? What's missing from what Jesus just said about the doctrines of grace is the end quotation marks. Jesus starts talking here, but I don't have quotation marks there because Jesus isn't finished talking. The next thing Jesus says is, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, if Jesus had a press secretary, or if Jesus had a public relations manager, they would say, Jesus, do you realize what you just said? About no one knows the Father except you and anyone who you reveal him to? And now you're saying, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden? Like, you don't understand. Those are two opposite thoughts. But the Bible is very comfortable with both those. The appeal of sinners to come to Christ. And that God has made a choice from before the creation of the world. And so on that basis, we will proceed with the blessing in Ephesians. Chapter 1 and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We talked about that last week. Let's add verse 4 where Paul takes us to the beginning of the blessing. Where does the blessing start? Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him, 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. And we talked about the choice last week, so I'm not going to belabor the point or go through it all again. But when the Bible uses the word choice, or uh, it's the word for the elect, when God makes this choice, it's a choosing unto yourself. It's a God cho- a choice that God makes unto Himself. It's for God's benefit or for God's purposes. Uh, if we build on this and we ask, well, when did this choosing take place? It's very clear. The answer is before the foundation of the world. We all make lots of choices. Ever since the world has been created and Adam and Eve were placed on the earth, choices were being made. There was a very bad choice made in the Garden of Eden. We all know about that choice. We participated in that choice. And we bear the consequences of that choice. But back before the foundation of the world, the only one making any choice was God. And God made a choice from before the foundation of the world to choose individuals to salvation. That was a choice God made. Before the foundation of the world. It's the ultimate choice. I've got on there Romans 9. I don't have time to look at it. You can look at it on your own. It's a choice where God says, uh, My purposes of election will stand. And this includes, especially in the context of Rebecca had two twin boys, Jacob and Esau. And the Lord says, Jacob I've loved and Esau I've hated. Now, I hesitate to even mention that because that probably needs a little explanation. It's, I think when it uses the word hated there, it's a comparative word. It's similar to unless you hate uh, brother and sister and mother and father, unless you hate them and love me more, you have no part of the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't calling upon his followers to hate their family. But by comparison, there's a world of difference. And so, with Jacob and Esau, it's revealed to Rebecca before the children were ever born, before, it says specifically there, before they'd done either good or bad, has nothing to do with their decisions, but so that my decision would stand, Jacob I've loved, and Esau I haven't. Esau got exactly what he wanted, and God blessed him in many physical, tangible ways but not to receive the promise that he'd given to Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father. There's a man named David Guzik. He's a, I don't know how to say his last name, but he's a pastor in Santa Barbara, California. He pastors a Calvary, uh, a Calvary chapel. And his commentaries are available online. They're, they're really nice in that they're kind of sim- simple. Like they're not, you don't have to slog through them because there's so much written He uh, assembles different thoughts and quotes. It's really a nice set. If you were to look him up, I I think you would benefit by him. David Guzik says this about what we're looking at. We dare not diminish what Paul writes here. Believers are chosen by God. And they are chosen before they have done anything or have been anything for God. The great light of this truth casts some shadows, namely in trying to reconcile human responsibility with divine sovereignty. Yet the purpose of light is not to cast shadows, but to guide our steps. I love that line. The light of God's selection gives us assurance to the permanence of his plan and his love towards us. When Jesus says both those concepts in Matthew chapter 11, it's not so that we can be so confused and throw up our hands in misunderstanding, but it's actually to shed light on something about the character of God, the sin of man, and the beauty of his gospel. 
It's meant to shed light. So what are we, uh, regarding God's choice, why does God make the choice that he does? It tells us at the end of verse, is that verse 4? I think I lost 4. But it says that we should be holy and blameless before him. Anyone who wants to fancy themselves a Christian, fancy themselves as a sinner saved by grace and no interest or pursuit of godliness and holiness, they don't understand what salvation is. Because salvation is that we would be holy and blameless. There is a movement toward being like Christ. It's not perfect. There's ups and downs. Uh, there's time, Sometimes you take a couple steps back before you move forward again. But over a given period of time, there is a movement towards holiness. Because that's what's behind God's choice. Um, when Mary, probably Joseph, when Joseph was told that Mary was going to have a child, Joseph was told, you will name him Jesus. Do you remember why? For he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. Not he will save his people in their sins, but from their sins. Well, behind all this, there's an unmistakable unmistakable implication and meaning that we were not holy or blameless when God chose us. So if, if he chose us so that we would be holy and blameless, the implication is when the choice was made, I was not holy and I was not blameless. He didn't look and say, oh, there's a holy one. There's a righteous one. I will certainly choose that righteous. I wasn't that. He chose me to be that. And so underlining under behind that statement would be this out of a fallen rebellious treasonous humanity god made a gracious choice to save some out of a fallen rebellious treasonous humanity god made a gracious choice to save some in uh, ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 5 what it looks like is he overcomes the state of death with life We'll get to Ephesians chapter 2 eventually. And in Ephesians 2, we find out I was dead in trespasses and sins. But because of God's choice, made from before the creation of the world, because of God's choice, He overcame my death and gave me life. In chapter 4, He had to overcome my darkened thinking and my hardness of heart. Romans puts it this way, He had to overcome my ungodliness and my suppression of the truth. And then a couple of verses later, he had to overcome futile thinking and darkened hearts. If salvation is only us doing something, irrespective of what God has done, there's no chance anyone enters the kingdom of heaven. Because I'm dead in trespasses and sin, my thinking is darkened, my understanding is darkened, I've got a hardened heart, I'm committed to ungodliness. I suppress the truth. My thinking is futile and my heart is darkened again. So God had to make a choice to overcome all of that, not for every sinner of the world, but for some by grace. Doctrines of grace. Paul continues to unfold God's blessing in Christ. Verse 5 and the end of verse 4, I, I really do think, goes best with verse 5. So it says, in love, 
He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So you've got a choosing that takes place prior. Now you've got God predestining us for adoption. The word predestined from a Greek interlinear, it's a, it's a dictionary for Greek words. The verb is composed of the preposition pro, which means before. And the verb, uh, we get our word horizon from the verb, which means to set a boundary. The word is found only six times in the New Testament. The only subject for this verb is God or his plan. God set a boundary or made a circle beforehand. And in that circle, he put those whom he chose for adoption. That's what the text says. I didn't make this up. I'm not a press secretary. I'm just telling you that's what it says. He drew a horizon and he put in the circle those whom he chose for adoption. The subject for the verb in the Bible is only used of God because nobody else can do that. The Bible tells me, you know, James warns, you know, you make plans about what you're going to do and how you're going to sell and where you're going to travel. But you really don't know that. It's only if the Lord wills. God's the only one that can do this. He can set a boundary. He can say, this is what's going to happen because he's God. So the verb is only used of God. The predestination is for adoption as sons. That's a relational term. This is a very relational concept. Now, you may not, you may not be tracking with me. You may be struggling with what I'm saying. The doctrines of grace, I don't know how new they are to you or not new to you. But for the sake of thinking it through, just play along. Just follow the argument. What looks like the argument in Paul's text. Just play along what it looks like. Because if I'm using words like, God's choosing before the creation of the world. If I'm using words like God predestined, what better word to use than adoption? Like, you couldn't have picked a better word. Because in adoption, nobody's obligated to do anything. You're not obligated to adopt somebody. It's a choice you make. It's a gracious choice you make. That's the word that is used here, adoption. I've got... In my office, I've got an, they call it an unabridged dictionary. So it's not a pocket dictionary. It's not even a, a large dictionary. It's, it's big. There's really, I don't think any such thing as unabridged because there's too many words. But by comparison, it's called unabridged. All the words are in there. If I, it's from 1967. If I look up the word adoption in there, the number one definition is, is a good one. It's to choose for or take to oneself. Make one's own by selection or assent. That's what God did. He chose to take for himself. That's what the word, he chose. That's what the word means. He choose for yourself. Well, at home, I've also got an unabridged dictionary. It's two volumes. So it's bigger than the one I have in my office. It's, you know, it's half of the alphabet here, the other half there. I looked it up in that dictionary, which was from 1927, so it goes back almost 100 years, their definition is this, to take a person into a particular relationship as an heir, friend, or citizen, especially to take as one's own child. That's exactly what God did. He adopted me as a son. Now, our understanding of adoption in our culture isn't exactly like the way the Bible uses it. And the big difference is, 
in our culture, in most cultures of the world, when you adopt, you adopt based upon characteristic character traits that you prefer. I want a child with a blonde hair, or I want a child with dark hair, or I want a boy, or I want a girl, or I like the way this child smiles at me every time I look. Or maybe it's a little bit older and you like some of the characteristics. I like that the child seems artistic. I like that the child seems to be so peaceful and happy. But whatever those characteristics are, in our culture, in most cultures of the world, you find characteristics you like and that's why you adopt. Not so with God. God isn't looking for admirable characteristics we have that would prompt him to make the choice. This is before the creation of the world. So God tells you exactly it's according to the purpose of his will. What does that even mean? It means you wouldn't understand. It means I did it. It's what pleased me. And you wouldn't understand. The word purpose is really not a great translation, the ESV. It's better translated the good pleasure of his will or the satisfaction of his will. I could demonstrate that if I had a little bit more time. It's pretty clear. That's how the word typically is used in Scripture. It's he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. It pleased God to do it. It pleased God to do it. In adoption, God is not obligated to extend mercy or grace to any sinner. Just like in any adoption we know, there is never an obligation, a requirement to adopt. It's a choice. God is not obligated to extend mercy or grace to any sinner, but graciously he does. Uh, I have Romans 3.23 on there because that's one of the verses we recite every week in Good News Club through the school year. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. God doesn't owe mercy to anyone. Everyone on God's earth receives mercy on some level. It's called common grace. Some receive grace even unto the forgiveness of sins and to be adopted into God's family as sons. And sons used because in Roman culture and even in Hebrew culture, you have the most rights and the most benefits. It's not downplaying women at all. It's saying they have all the rights that a son would have because they're adopted as sons. Paul would say, that's my story. Paul didn't say, you know, I mean, we're learning about him in Acts. He's been introduced in Acts. He's... He's persecuting the church, trying to destroy the church in Jerusalem. He's going about from house to house, finding Christians and dragging them off to prison. And then Paul wouldn't say, and then one day it struck me, what am I doing? What kind of a life is this? I think these Christians might be onto something. I've been enlightened. Paul didn't say, I did an about face. I'm a changed, I've changed myself. I'm a new man. What Paul would say is, you know what? I was struck down. I can tell you it was not in my heart to confess Christ as Savior. I was struck down by the grace of God. And that's exactly what he describes in Galatians chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached to me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. But I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone. Paul would say, you know what changed my life? God had made a choice from before I ever understood, before the foundation of the world, and God had drawn a circle and said, he's in, in this adoptive circle, he's going to be one of mine. And when the time came, that's what happened on that Damascus road. That's unusual in that God doesn't normally strike down people on a road by a vision from heaven. But in a sense, that's every salvation story. The reason why I think if I were to, if we were to really compare notes, most of us would say, I know I would say, I can't tell you how many times I heard the gospel until there was one day where all of a sudden it struck me and it made sense and I realized I needed to confess Christ as Lord and Savior. What was it? Was I especially bright that day? Or was it the grace of God struck me down and said, now is your day, Cliff. Now is your day to repent of your sin and turn and look to Christ as your only hope and Savior. J.I. Packer died in 2020, one of God's gifts to the church. He wrote a book. I've got one of these original copies. 1973 is when it was copyrighted. When I was in college the first go-around, second time I was in college with Terry, uh, we actually made it through. Uh, I don't know if she tried once before like I did, but first time I was in college, way back in the day, late 19, early 1980, right in then, uh, Knowing God was a really popular book among Christians. Everybody was reading Knowing God. It's a, it's a little bit of a dense read, and, it, and, I, and I probably say that only because modern books have the line space so much better, and there's more margin, and you feel like you're making a lot of progress. So these, the lines are a little bit tighter fascinating read, but it's still available. I pulled this up off a Target, which is not like your Christian family-friendly store, right? But you can, you can order Knowing God by J.I. Packer from, from Target. It's an unbelievable read. Here's his application about how it ought to strike any of us that we'd be, we would be adopted into God's family as sons. And I can hear him saying this. He's had such a winsome voice. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new, and better than the old. Everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. You know, there's a lot of things I enjoy in life. I like playing ultimate frisbee outside. I like bicycling a few times a week. I like, I like any number of activities, but I pray to God. None of those activities trump what I have in Christ. The ability to be able to open up the scriptures and read what God has for me that day and to pray back to him what he's revealed and to gather with the church. I told you last week I'm, I'm kind of looking for a church to go to when our family goes to the beach. I wasn't having much luck. 
I did find a couple really good choices. I, have, I had to broaden my circle. I had to broaden my horizon. God, God knew exactly what his was. But I had to broaden my horizon. And as I'm listening to some of these worship services from a couple good churches, I'm like, I can't wait to go to church on Sunday. I'm like, I, I, they're singing the songs we sing, and I want to sing those songs. And Hannah picked some of those songs. I mean, I'm looking forward to that. I pray to God, all those other interests don't trump what I say is most important. What the Bible calls the pearl of great price. And if that's not in your heart, like, you know, like, I don't mind coming to church, but i got to be honest with you. It's not really all that for me. Then your prayer should be, God, make it all that for me. Because it's what matters. Give me an... You can't conjure up what's not there. I can't conjure up what's there. My prayer to God in many ways is, God, give me new affections. I know what my desires are. I've got desires to please myself all day long. God, give me affections greater than my own desires. That's what Jonathan Edwards called your affections. Something greater than just a desire, which can be earthly. An affection for what God says is most important. God's blessing to what great end? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has graced or favored us in the beloved. The English Standard Version uses the word blessed here, which is a travesty. In verse 3, the word blessing was used three times. This is not the word blessing that was used three times in verse 3. It's the word associated. It's from the root word grace. So it's to the praise of his glorious charis, grace, with which he has graced us. In the beloved. Why they chose to use the word blessed, I have no idea. I think they had a quota get through that day and they're like, just let's quick, let's get it done. Uh, very poor decision. If we had time, I would look at the history of God's gracious choice. I think maybe I'll look at the last one and we'll, and then I'll throw it up for comments and questions. Go to Deuteronomy chapter 10. This gives you some context for the history of God's gracious choice through all of Scripture. It's especially in Deuteronomy, and then it's especially, especially in Deuteronomy chapter 10. So if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find that on page 155, if I got it right. Otherwise, the fifth book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. We see God's gracious choice... In choosing Israel. You also see that in the earlier passages, chapter 4, chapter 7, but especially I like chapter 10. So chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, verse 12. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. Behold, to the Lord your God belong the heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Everything belongs to God. He created it all. Nothing is withheld from God. Verse 15. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. That's God's gracious choice. God doesn't owe anything to the Hebrews any more than he owed to the Egyptians or the Babylonians or the Canaanites or pick your people group. He owes nothing to any of those people. 
But he set his heart and chose Israel, you above all peoples as it is this day. And then listen to what God says in verse 16. Here's where a press secretary would have come in handy. Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. Not partial? Didn't God just say, I've chosen you above all the other people groups? And now you're saying you're not partial? What does that even mean except this? It has nothing to do with you. It's not like you were any better, and he makes that clear in, I think, chapter 7. It's not that you were greater than any other people group. You weren't mightier. You weren't smarter. There was nothing to distinguish you from any other group, but I chose you because I set my heart on you, and I put you in a circle and said, you're going to be my chosen people. You above everybody else, but I'm not partial because it had nothing to do with you. It's according to the good pleasure of my own will. Doctrines of grace. What are your comments and questions? Next week, we will move on to grace applied in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I suspect it will take several weeks. Anyone? Let's stand and sing the doxology. <laughs>